As we were just singing that song, I just had this picture that that's what God is doing for us here today. And so I want to pray before I preach that God will send his angels afresh Again, preparing the way for Christ to come with power. Clear away the darkness so that the light of Christ can enter our hearts afresh this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you that the centuries can speak to us. Thank you for these magnificent words that have the power to create whole new pictures. Jesus, I thank you for the huge host of angels that you send at your command before you to clear the way. And right now, I pray, Father, that all of those things that distract us in our minds, that get in the way... All those mundane things of life that have their own sanctity and holiness to them because it is in them that we obey you day after day. But for now, for this next little while, I pray that you will silence them, their voices, uh, destroy all of the works of the forces of darkness as they seek to interfere with us. <clears throat> and we pray, O oh God, that as the angels of light come, the darkness will flee. And you will shine that light into the deepest parts of our heart. For some of us, that light needs to come this morning to bring joy. For others, that light needs to come to bring comfort and reinforcement and obedience we are already offering to you. Yet for others, it needs to come in convicting power that we might move further in our obedience to you. You come to demand full homage from us, Jesus. And all that you ask us to do is because you are worthy to receive it. And in receiving it, you just give back to us pressed down, shaken together in full measure and overflowing. So we ask you, Lord, that you will also give faith to us this morning, that we might believe your word as we hear it preached and taught in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Earlier on this week, I was driving to the bank one morning and I was listening to the radio there and they were um, giving some advice on how to survive the holidays. And they were referring to the temptation and the opportunities to eat a lot more of all the wrong kinds of food than we normally would. And their advice had four parts to it. Uh, the first part was take lots of salmon oil capsules or eat fish. Number two was to make sure you get enough rest. Uh, and I have forgotten number three. Oh, go to the gym. Go to the gym was number three. <laughs> And then number four was surround yourself with family and friends because in their words, research has shown that nothing beats loving relationships when it comes to living healthy lives. What God has been teaching us for three or four thousand years, people are just discovering these days and packaging is as, as wisdom. And it's not surprising, therefore, that this Advent season, God has seen fit to bring to our attention this whole business of loving relationships. Three weeks ago, we looked at the issue of heart-to-heart -heart relationships in the body of Christ as we looked at Paul's short letter to Philemon. And then last week, Pastor Stevens took us through 1 John. And we learned there that one of the ways in which we know that we are children of God is by the love that we show one another. And Stevens exhorted us to do two very specific things. To learn the language of love. And we are different in this area. And you know, I told you in the message on Philemon that we as a staff were trying to take a few intentional steps forward in deepening our heart-to-heart -heart connections. And so we decided to take Pastor Stevens' challenge seriously. And so last Tuesday at staff meeting, nine of us went around the table and each one of us shared what our first and second love languages were. And it made for an interesting time of conversation and fellowship. And I think we've grown in our understanding. We got some good pictures of why our staff reacts the way they do. Do you know eight of the nine people had the same love language, either number one or number two. And there was one person who didn't. 
How important is it to know that? It's been very important for me because I have to respond and relate to that person very differently than the other eight. And hopefully they with us. And so we've been on that journey. And I hope some of you have taken Stevens' challenge seriously. <clears throat> and then the second thing that he told us was to love one another by listening to one another's stories. And who will forget that skit that was enacted for us? You don't really know me, do you? Today, as we continue on our next stop on Highway 27, we're reaching the end of our journey pretty fast now. We're going to look at two more, Second John and Third John, two more brief letters that John wrote. Uh, and what they will do taken together is to focus on one particular setting that lends itself to listening to heart-to-heart connection stories. Second John and Third John. Now, these are the two briefest letters in the New Testament. By the way, speaking of short, for 40 glorious minutes, I get to be six inches taller than I normally am. (laughs) Although I will be stepping off every now and then. Get back down to earth. Uh, Why are these two uh, letters so short? He gives the same reason. He said, uh, both in 2 John and 3 John, he says the same thing. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. John preferred to talk face to face, expected to be there soon, so he was just writing a very, very quick letter. Well, what was he saying in these short letters? Eleven times he talks about the word truth and five times he talks about love. So he's talking about love and truth. And you will find him referring often to this phrase, it gives me great joy to know that my children are walking in the truth. John is an old man now near the end of his life of discipleship. 60, 70 years of being a follower of Christ. And he refers to all Christians as his children. They're all younger than him. And he says, I want to know, it gives me great joy to know that you're walking in the truth. And of course, the particular truth that John is concerned about is the truth that we are celebrating this Advent season. That God became a human being and the Messiah came in in human flesh. Stevens reminded us last week that One of the prevalent errors at that time that John was writing to refute was this early form of Gnosticism that denied that the Messiah came in the flesh. And the reason why this truth is so important is not it is not detached from love. It is the truth that tells us what love is all about. Because for God to become a man, it meant leaving where he was to come down to where we are to identify with us. And then as you learned in our study of the book of Hebrews when Tom G. taught you that therefore he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and therefore represent us to God as a faithful and merciful high priest. By the way, that's exactly what love is. When we love one another, we leave where we are to go where they are. We invest enough time to understand something about them and then we are better able to be priests either representing God to them or representing them to God in our prayers. Therefore, this truth of the incarnation that John is so anxious to preserve, is not detached from love. It is the truth that leads to loving relationship. So in a sense, 2 John and 3 John simply give shorter versions of the message that was amplified in 1 John, which naturally leads to the question, why bother? So what new additional revelation comes from 2 John and 3 John? For that, we actually have to go back to a verse in 1 John. uh, Chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, writes John, this is the last hour And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Most scholars believe that John was pastoring a church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. And he trained many teachers and sent them out uh, all over Asia Minor. Again, the land of Turkey today. 
And these teachers, like many traveling teachers in those days, relied entirely upon the hospitality of Christians, both for food and for shelter and for other kinds of help that they needed. Well, some of these teachers that left them were men who had fallen prey to this truth of Gnosticism. But they were continuing to try and avail of this ministry of hospitality of other Christians, especially those who hadn't got alert to these dangers, to help them. And so John writes, in Second John, his unique contribution, he addresses these false teachers who presume on hospitality. And he says to them, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. So, yes, we are called to love, but love is not an excuse for the promotion of heresy and false theology. And hospitality to people who are teaching erroneous doctrine, he says, you are actually participating in that wicked work. And so he says, if these people show up in your house, don't even open the door to them. And so that's the message of Second John. Remember two people yawning? Last time we learned was one yawn was <coughs> fellowship barometer. This is two yawn, shut the door. That's the message. Shut the door to false teachers. Now in third John, he goes to the other side. He commends an individual in another church who is demonstrating love to the people, which is what John's message is all about but one particular manifestation of it. He says in 3 John, Dear friend, writing to a man named Gaius, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men, so that we may work together for the truth. This is the opposite issue. Now these are teachers who are teaching the truth. And John is commending individuals, one particular individual, Gaius, for opening his house to these people. So obviously the message of three John, three men yawning, is the opposite, which is open the door. Okay, so that's how you're going to remember two John and three John. Two John, shut the door to false teachers. Three John, open the door to true teachers. So second John and third John build on the message of one John on truth and love, but specifically enlighten the, uh, emphasize this one dimension of saying who to show hospitality to and who not. <clears throat> anyway, that's the message. I want to spend the rest of the sermon looking at what does it mean for you and me today. Well, first of all, the most obvious recipients of this kind of hospitality, the most direct application of this will be, of course, today to those who are traveling evangelists and international workers who are proclaiming the good news. And last year in our series on the church is bigger than you think, I devoted a whole message to refreshing and encouraging our international workers. So I'm not going to repeat all that again, but I do want to remind you that there are opportunities that you don't want to miss. Scott and Laura Lee McLean are back home on furlough for a whole year with us from Malawi. Dave and Nancy Pett are back home from Moscow. They're living in Georgetown. And Puri is back home for three or four months with us. Uh, Jan Hayes has been back for several months after two terms in Mexico. And Susan Perry is back home in Chatham after two or three terms in uh, the Philippines. So we have four or five of our international workers back home on furlough. So do not uh, miss this opportunity to, to begin uh, to invite them into your homes and to understand a little bit of their heart and amplify. And there's Karen Stell sitting there as well who will be leaving very soon. And so we have opportunities all the time. So that's the most obvious application. The second one, of course, I think by implication... It is also to those who are not traveling, but who are still preaching and teaching the truth. Your pastors and your teachers. And I'm sharing this with you, not to exhort you, but to thank you. 
Because I am aware that over the years, in fact, over the decades that I've been here now, people in this congregation have invited the staff to their homes, to their cottages, <coughs> for times of refreshing, for ministry retreats and things like that. And we deeply appreciate that. I, I know there are individuals in this congregation who have uh, uh, given gifts of their timeshare units to people on our staff, and you have blessed them. And on their behalf, I want to thank you. And Sham and I just simply do not have enough words to thank a couple of families in this church, one in particular, that year after year after year have blessed us with a soul-enlarging and ministry-energizing Sabbath retreats in their homes. And so we are deeply appreciative of that, and we just encourage you to just continue, and we trust that God will bless you for that. But while those are the two most obvious applications, in the New Testament sense, as you have learned in this church, all of us who are using our spiritual gifts are in fact working together to build the kingdom. And therefore, in a a sense, every one of us needs open homes and open doors to one another to give and to receive this ministry of hospitality for that same purpose of encouraging one another as we work together for the truth. And I want you to listen to a, a story from a couple this morning. We've been learning about the importance of listening to stories. Listen to a couple from our congregation who recently were on the receiving end of this kind of a ministry of hospitality and let them share with you what God... And by the way, this is uncoached. I did not tell them what to say. And so, really, that's one of the ways in which we can bless everyone, uh, one another, through this ministry of hospitality. Well, you've seen what John is teaching us. You've seen how it might apply today. You've heard from a couple who's actually received it. What I want to do for the rest of this evening is to talk a little bit about what gets in the way. What are the blocks that get in the way of us as a body of believers doing more of this kind of ministry to one another? And I want to go back to 3 John. He not only commends a man named Gaius for doing it well, he speaks about another guy who was doing the opposite. His name was Diotrephes. And he says this in verses 9 till 10. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. In two verses, John gives a graphic five-part description of this man named Diotrephes who represented the exact opposite spirit to what we are talking about. First of all, he says he loves to be first. We call that pride. Secondly, and this just simply flows out of a proud spirit, he would have nothing to do with John. It was a refusal to submit to John's spiritual authority over that church. Because, of course, if he submitted to John's authority, that would mean he would lose his. Which, of course, is a big problem for people who struggle with pride. And this internal attitude often expresses itself externally as criticism. So, rather than submit to John's authority, he began to gossip maliciously about him, criticizing them instead. And then, of course, flatly refusing to show any hospitality at all. And then, worst of all, controlling other people, those who were trying to do, putting them out of the church and getting them in the way. Pretty ugly pictures, all, all of course rooted in pride. A desire to be first, which in turns means an internal spirit of rebellion, an external spirit of criticism, a flat outright refusal to do what you're encouraged to do, and then attempting to control other people to your way of thinking. Now, as I reflected upon this person, it occurred to me that 
there are probably some loose and maybe not so loose parallels to this spirit today that might get in the way of doing this ministry of hospitality. First of all, pride. How, how, how can pride affect them? And these are just illustrative. They may or may not apply. They came to my mind. One way in which number one can get in the way is, well, how come nobody invites me even though I invite people so many times over? This is a particular problem for those of us who have the gift of hospitality. Because those who have the gift of hospitality, you are likely to far more times have people over in your home than ever get invited back. And so you need to be careful about this. Why should I do it if nobody is doing it to me? But probably much more relevant to the point, pride gets in the way when we confuse hospitality with entertainment. And I've told you this before. Entertainment is focused upon ourselves because the whole focus is how am I going to come across? What are people going to think of my house? How, what are they going to say about the meal? Are the dishes all okay? And therefore, anxiety, tension, fatigue, all these things come happily along with those things. Whereas the whole focus on hospitality is the other individual. And so that's one way in which pride can get in the way. Because what they want is the listening ear. You heard the testimony today. What they want is a listening ear. What they want is someone to be able to listen to their stories and an opportunity to listen to other people's stories. So that's one way in which pride can get in. Refusal to submit to spiritual authority can be an attitude to the kind of messages you've been hearing the last three or four weeks. Well, who says heart-to-heart relationships are important? Why do I have to get to learn somebody else's love language? Why do I need to listen to somebody else's stories? Why do I have to open my home to people? It's all only your opinion anyway. That kind of reaction is an example of, of, of diatrophies again. Then some will go the next step. If you want to discount somebody's teaching, well then find something that's wrong with them and amplify that. And you know what? That's very easy to do. Because all of us teachers, whether it's me or Stevens or Andre or Tom or Duncan or anybody else who's preached from this pulpit, we're human beings. You'll have no trouble finding faults with us. But if you start using your focus on those faults to discount truth that God is teaching you, then you are falling to this spirit. That can happen. And then, of course, an outright refusal to show hospitality. No way. I'm not opening my home. I don't want anybody asking me those kind of questions. I don't want to be listening to stories like that because then someone's going to expect me to tell those stories like that. And then some, although very few, might even go the last step and say, I need to actively promote a different kind of spirit and discount this teaching and even dissuade people who are doing this kind of stuff. So all of those are loose parallels to this, to this diatrophies character that can get in the way of us communi- opening ourselves to this ministry of hospitality. But he doesn't exhaust the reasons. There's, there are a couple more that may, in fact, have a much wider application. Although I'm not so sure about that entertainment one, I think that can be fairly widespread. Many, many years ago, a staff member in our church did a survey. Uh, She surveyed about 45 people. The church was about 500 people at that time. So close to 10% may or may not be statistically significant. She asked them the question, what gets in the way of doing hospitality ministries? And there were three answers that came. 60% of the people said busyness. 22% said preparation fatigue. And another 18% said the cost. I want to talk briefly about each of these things. First of all, about busyness. You know, everybody's busy. We're all busy. The only question is, what are you busy with? Are we busy with those things, by and large, that are eternally significant? Or are we busy with those things that perhaps have some kind of temporal significance, but don't have any lasting value at all? 
Remember what Rick Warren said in this book, if you read during 40 Days of Purpose on fellowship, that the best use of life is what? Love. And here is the Apostle John, Jesus' beloved disciple, writing near the end of his life, probably distilling 60 years of faithful discipleship to Jesus Christ. And guess what he chooses to talk about? Loving one another. And his very last letter has to do with hospitality. That tells me that it's pretty important. We can make a good case for the fact that in this kind of open home, open heart ministry to one another, we are investing in things that are of eternal significance. And therefore, well worth redirecting some of our busyness to that. Now, that's going to require a change in basic attitudes. It's going to require a fundamental change in the way we look at our homes. Are they only castles for private retreats, although they certainly provide that? Or are our homes and everything that is in them a tool given by God for ministry to one another? Are the furnishings in our homes the kind that we would have to say, nice to look at, but please don't touch? Or are they to be used? I mean, are couches to sit on or to look at? When we buy new things for our home, when we decorate our homes... Do we ask ourselves the question, what kind of atmosphere is this creating for the people who will come into this home? Will it provide an inviting atmosphere for them or will it leave them on tenterhooks all evening? I better not touch that in case I break it. You know, the world's philosophy is love things and use people to get them. God's philosophy is love people and use things to serve them. It's a huge difference between the two. Yes, your furniture is going to get worn out. Yes, the carpets are going to get stained. And yes, there will be handprints on the mirrors. And the wallpaper might get dog-eared over a period of time. But hopefully, while these things are slowly deteriorating, we are building into the fabric of human souls things that will remain eternally lodged in them. Without this kind of a countercultural perspective on our homes and the things in the home, We may do entertainment, but we probably will never do hospitality. But with it, with it, there is a hope that we may be able to redirect our busyness. Of course, the amount all varies with people. It varies with our life stages. People who are busy raising two or three or four children, that's about all the hospitality they can handle. (coughs) But at a different stage in life, where Sham and I are, for example, that's not a situation, a different situation. Or there may be life... Phases of your life, when you're going through sickness or difficulties or whatever, when you need to recoup. I'm not talking about that. But by and large, what is our basic attitude towards our homes and the things that God has given to us? That's the question. And one of the very practical ways in which we try to solve the busyness issue, and I'm as busy as you are, is to try and block off dates well in advance and write them into the calendar. We do that with everything that is busy. I do that with everything that is important. So that all the important things get scheduled in. So I'm able to say to people afterwards, I'm busy. And so if that helps you, you might want to consider something like that. That's some thoughts on the busyness. Now on the preparation fatigue. Hospitality makes me tired is what 22% said. Well, I don't know what the situation is in your individual case if you are like that. But you have to ask one question. Is it because I'm focusing more on entertainment and hospitality? As I said to you, it doesn't matter what kind of homes we have. 
It doesn't even matter what we serve them. As Marcia said, they could have opened a can of beans and sat us on, on the haystacks. And you know what? That's not just for effect. Nor is it just one person. Let me tell you a story that happened to us many, many years ago. The, the, the details that led up to it are irrelevant and unimportant. But I was speaking over the weekend here. And I happened to meet many people, some of them for the first time. And uh, it was a Saturday and that Sunday night uh, one of the couples wanted to come to church. And so we invited them to stay over at our home afterwards just for an after-church snack. Well, about 5 o'clock in the evening, we got a call from this couple saying, uh, so-and-so wants to come. Can we bring that other couple as well? I said, sure, do. When they showed up, there were four more people that were with them. So there were eight people in all. That evening, Sham's sister and her three children were with us as well. So we had five from our, four from our family, five from our, my sister-in-law's family, and there were eight people, 17 people, where there should have been two people joining us that evening. We literally had to halve everything that we had planned to serve that day. <clears throat> People were sitting on brass stools that were never designed for, to be sat on. Our couches were fairly old in those days. Our children were still relatively young. But you know what was interesting? And, and some of these people came from south of the border from very wealthy homes. One of them, I know, lives in an 8,000 square foot home. What was amazing was that at the end of the day, on the way out, every one of them said, this was the highlight of our weekend. This was the highlight of our weekend. They literally did not care about the condition of the carpet or the furniture or what was served. And there wasn't enough served because there wasn't enough to go around. But the conversation was unbelievable. People really don't care if we are willing to give them their attention. Remember the Mary and Martha story? Martha invited Jesus into her home. It was her home. But she got so busy. She forgot to listen. But Jesus didn't rebuke her for her work. Somebody has to do the work. If everybody sat around doing nothing, that's a problem too. Uh, we misunderstand. Jesus was not rebuking Martha for working, but that she let the work get in the way of what the issue was all about, which is to listen to people. So, you need to ask yourself about preparation fatigue. Is it, is it, really, is it possible it's because the focus is wrong? And then what about the cost part of it? Let me tell you another story. I'm going to use couple A and couple B just to keep the story straight. Yeah. We, we, uh, one, one evening in our home, this also happened many years ago, there was a few people were sitting around talking, enjoying dinner. And one couple, couple A, the guy turned to me and said, he said, oh, this is a great evening. He said, it must have cost you a lot. We'd love to do something like this, but we're on a very tight budget. So I told him the story of couple B. I said, hey, listen to this story. <clears throat> Some time ago, we'd had couple B over to our home along with a few other people as well. And this person had gone back to her home and that plus other things that inspired her to do the same thing. But she said, I didn't know how to cook. So she went to a friend of hers and said, can you teach me how to make a very simple dish that doesn't cost a lot? And so she, I think it was lasagna. She learned how to make lasagna. And so she would make this one dish of lasagna, buy three loaves of French bread, didn't even bother slicing them, put them on the table and said, go help yourself. And we learned this whole story when we, they had invited us to their home. Anyway, so I told this story to couple A. The very next day, it so happened that couple B, who had moved away from this church, had come back to this church to visit us, uh, visit the, the people here. So when I met them at the door, I said, hey, you'll never know what happened yesterday. So I told them about their story and how their example helped this couple. And they said, oh, we moved to a new church and guess what? We're still doing it. She solved the problem of busyness and cost, uh, preparation fatigue and cost at the same time. And so again, if our focus is upon the people, maybe these things won't be as big an obstacle as we might think they are. 
Now, whenever we talk about cost in the society that we live in, we always have to talk about benefits too. This is a society that loves cost-benefit analysis. But while we can't reduce it to numbers, I do want to talk for a few moments about the incredible benefits of hospitality ministries. And I want to talk about one area, benefits to our own children. There are many, many others, but that's the one I want to focus on. It provides a wonderful opportunity to help your children realize the value of working together on a team with their parents for a cause that is important. Our children were no different than probably many of yours are. They didn't like their duties. They didn't like their chores. And there were always no shortage of ingenious attempts to try and get out of those things. But we never had a problem on hospitality nights. They would pitch in there, do the work, clean up afterwards. And I remember at least on one occasion, and I only even remember this because I have it all written down in my journals and my notes, that we literally had to beg them at 11 o'clock to go to bed and sleep so that we could finish off the work. And last night on the way out, another lady said to me, you know, that's true. They opened their home for, small group, uh, for a small group every Wednesday. She said, our kids never help us during the week. But on Wednesday nights, we don't have to ask questions. My son will come home from school or wherever he comes home, and between 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock, he vacuums the place, gets everything set up. Why? Because people are coming over tonight. Children get a wonderful opportunity to understand how they can work together on a team with their parents. They get the sense that we are doing something important. Secondly, it also communicates values to them. If we begin to see, they see that their parents think of their home as a place for people to come. And they also see what happens in that place is not entertainment but hospitality. The listening and the sharing of stories and the heart-to-heart connections, they're far more likely to carry over that attitude into their own homes as well. Another benefit, uh, unexpected benefits. I remember a time when Miriam Charter was over to our home. And Miriam was just by herself at that time. And she was still, at that time, working in Ceausescu's Romania. So a lot of cloak and dagger kind of stuff sneaking across the border on trains. And, you know, she would never know who she was going to meet at a particular station at what time. That would have all been set up by the previous team that went there. So if she ever missed a single train connection, she was in trouble. So uh, one time she was over, and that, that... At that time, our children, we were going through in our own family devotions about uh, how do you know that God is a living God, encountering the living God? So we asked that question to Miriam. Miriam, how do you experience God as a living God? She said, well, let me tell you a story. And she had gone up to this particular town there, and she was at a platform, a train station, uh, waiting to catch the next train. But it was going to come and one track over on the other side. But just, just as that train pulled in, another train pulled in from this side. And that train was only going to stop for three minutes. And she said, I didn't have enough time to go all the way around. I was really up a creek. I didn't know what to do. And she said she felt a tap on her shoulder. And she turned around. There was this guy she didn't know. He picked up both the bags and said, follow me. So they walked right into this train. And this train doors opened. She got in and the door opened on the other side. And she got onto the other train, turned around and looked and couldn't find anybody there. You should have seen the eyes of our two children. Our God is a living God. How do you buy those kinds of experiences? (coughs) Years of teaching could not have communicated that in one setting. That's the benefit of hospitality. There are many, many more, but these are some that come to my mind. We've taken a look at this critically important ministry. A setting that allows us to listen to people's stories and to refresh them. We try to understand a little bit about what it is and what it isn't and what are the obstacles that might get in the way. 
I want to actually finish this message, actually finish this series of messages that have been focusing on love from Philemon to 1 John and through John and 3 John with a brief insight that has really, really, really stuck with me and helped me in the last 10 or 11 days. Uh, this is one of the commentaries that I don't usually get a lot from because of this man's style of writing and stuff. But there are nuggets buried in there, so I always save some time near the end when I'm researching for a sermon to read it. Well, right near the end, I read this. <clears throat> he says, we may destroy our capacity for love by not yielding to its impulse. We lose the love impulse when we refuse to obey its suggestions. Love asks for some sacrificial service. And we listen to some calm, calculating, satanic voice. And caring for ourselves, we stifle love. If the first movement of the life of God in the soul of a human is an impulse of love, our first responsibility is that of obedience to it. If we turn a deaf ear to the suggestions of Satan and yielding ourselves to love serve in answer to its impulse, love will deepen and intensify. When I read this, I knew God was speaking to me. You know, I pray about this more than anything else in my life. I, I pray for my studying and I pray for my teaching and I pray every time I come to preach. And I do. I'm dependent on God for every word that I say. But I pray far more than anything else about the desire to become more loving than I am. It's not what I'm naturally gifted at doing. My wife has the gift of mercy and hospitality and she's a flexible feeler. It isn't fair. <laughs> I am a structured thinker with gifts of teaching, knowledge and leadership. So, that, I mean, what hope do I have? Now, I'm not joking. I'm being very serious. I struggle with these questions. I've even asked God, if love is so important, how come it's stacked this way? So I pray. I pray a lot. He hasn't given me any choice over it, so I pray. <clears throat> this one has, in, at least in recent times, I cannot think of anything. Because when I read it, I said, Lord, I don't want to decrease my capacity to love. Small though it is, I want to increase it. And I realized that every time God brought a holy impulse to love in some way, I had an immediate choice of either decreasing my ability or increasing my ability. And I tell you, for 11 days since I've read this, it has made an actual difference in the choices that I made over and over. Let me give you a few illustrations. I'm only telling you this because you need to know that it actually works. And I can't illustrate from somebody else's life. One of the arguments that Sham and I often have is that I don't do enough housework. At least not given, not on my own initiative. I do it when I'm told. But there is one area in which she will agree I do more than my share. That's in the kitchen. Because I grew up in a home where a kitchen was immaculate. So I don't like dirty kitchens. So I'll do whatever work is needed to clean up the kitchen. Well, recently one night after I read this stuff, I cleaned up what I normally do. And then I saw the kettle boiling there and there was no one in the kitchen. Usually when that happens, I know Sham's getting ready to make a cup of tea. And usually she makes it herself. I remembered this first. So I made it for her and took it to where she was. Big deal? For me, it was. And she said it was for her too. The last Sunday in church, you know, the children were doing this thing in the gym. So I, I wanted to go there and I couldn't go after the first service because of another commitment that had come up. And so I was talking to some people and on the way out there, uh, there was a lady standing there. And she made a comment upon the membership. She said, oh, people have taken additional steps forward today. And I said, yes. And so I felt I needed to talk to her. So we talked for a while talked about her commitments and the steps that she needed to take. And that would normally have been the end of the conversation, but then came the next impulse, pray for her. So I said, can I pray for you right now? And I did. So then I managed to get to the gym and got the stuff. And on the way out, coming back this way, another family was going over this way, and there was one particular individual in that family that had been on my mind that week. And the impulse came again, stop, talk to her, take her to the office, pray with her. So I did, and she said, yes, 
And we spent about 15, 20 minutes of very, very fruitful conversation. It wasn't over yet. I came out, walked back towards the gym. Another family came by the other direction. I had another request. The difference was I would probably have fulfilled that request before because of who was asking for it. This time I did it with absolute delight and with absolutely no sense of being delayed in any way at all. And then yesterday morning, I was getting ready to go to a wedding that I had to do at 11 o'clock at the old mill. And at 10 o'clock, there was a phone call. It was actually someone to pass a message on to Sham. Dozens of times this person has called to pass on messages to Sham. So I would have taken the message and said, bye. Just before I said that, I heard her coughing. It was another holy impulse. I said, are you doing, are you okay? She said, well, no, I'm really not okay. You know? And, you know, of course, I have often problems. And as a matter of fact, I have a cold right now. So I said, you know, I know what it feels like. Can I pray for you? I've never, ever done that for this person before. Because I remembered this. Every single time those impulses came, I remembered this. Sundar, here's your opportunity to either decrease your capacity to love or increase your capacity to love. And so I I felt I needed to share this with you. It was the most powerful thing that happened to me on this sermon. And you've, you've heard a lot in the last three weeks. From Philemon, the need to open our hearts, to have heart to heart relationships with people. From 1 John, you heard some practical emphasis last week on learning one another's love languages. And we can begin at our homes. And listening to stories. And today you've heard about how homes can become a place where that kind of thing can happen. And you can facilitate to happen. My hope and my prayer is that as God brings specific impulses into your heart, that will have that kind of an effect. That you will find yourself immediately at the crossroads again and say, I am now able to deepen my capacity to love or I am about to take a step to shrink my capacity to love. And I trust by the grace of God, you will say, no Lord, I want to deepen and enlarge my capacity to love. So worship team comes now and leads us again. Will you just pray, use the words of the song to speak to God and uh, open your heart uh, so that you might be able to recognize those impulses. And you know, ultimately, it's that last verse of the song that sets everything in proper perspective. The issue is not us telling Jesus there is room in my heart for thee. It's him telling us there is room on my side for you. And so my blessing for you this whole Christmas season, as I have continued to prepare for Advent over and over and over again, is the promise of peace when we walk in his ways. The gift of peace that comes is those on whom his favor rests. And so my blessing for you is that you may be blessed with the favor of God on your lives. And that particular manifestation of that favor will be this increased and enlarged capacity to follow your servant king. And then find that holy peace descending upon your heart. Go in Jesus' name.